we should look at, you know, what is it that China wants? Is this something that we can live with? Or is it something that is to our benefit as well? Or is it, is it not? Hello, you are listening to Studium Generale, the podcast of the Erasmus University. My name is David Boeren, program maker science, and together with my colleagues, I organize lectures, workshops, film screenings, and more for students, but also for non-students, to broaden their horizons. Professor Frank Pieke visited us to talk about China and current affairs. He first looked at the internal power structures. What is the role of the Chinese Communist Party, and is this changing? With this in mind, he elaborated on the geopolitical consequences of Xi Jinping's strategies. Among other distinctions, Frank Pieke is Professor of Modern China Studies at Leiden University, a fellow at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study in Uppsala, and the author of multiple books about China. Are you interested in more of these kinds of lectures? Then check out our website, social media, or YouTube channel, at SG Erasmus, for upcoming events, or as you're doing right now, to listen to some of our previous events. Have fun listening to the lecture. Right. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. It's almost impossible not to disappoint after that, I would think. Um, but I'll do my best to say a few things that you might find interesting. By the way, I can't see you at all because there's a light shining in my face, so I'm talking to a black wall, which is really weird. Um, so as said, um, what I would like to do is talk about, first of all, China's political structure and uh, also the relationship between uh, the Chinese administration and society, uh, which isn't as straightforward as it might, you might think it is, um, and indeed then talk more about um, China's growing not quite superpower status yet uh, and what that means for us. Uh, and what we should do, or perhaps also should not do. The question really is, is there anything that should be done, or is there anything that can be done? Um, but most of the time, actually, I will be talking about China itself, um, which is my area of expertise. Uh, but I also will draw on very recent research that I've done, and currently still doing here in the Netherlands, on uh, China's influence uh, among the overseas Chinese communities here in the Netherlands, um, and also amongst uh, Chinese businesses, uh, Chinese invested uh, companies here in the Netherlands. Um, so I'll, I'll have also something to say about what China means to us here in this small but important part of, of Europe. Um, one thing I would like to say before I get started, and that is that um, we live in a time where having a taking a stance, having an opinion, quite often trumps uh, research or tr trumps knowledge or trumps trying to understand. Um, and China is one of these topics where everybody has an opinion on, um, but many people talk about it without knowing really what's going on. Um, I will do the opposite. I will tell you what I know. Um, and actually, in a sense, my opinion is not that important. You know, what do I think about the situation in the Uyghurs is not interesting. You know, I'm just one person. Um, but I can tell you how the situation in the Uyghurs fits or doesn't fit in the way that Chinese society is managed. So don't constantly ask me from, for taking a political stance. I do that, I'm happy to do that, but that's not the point, I think, of this talk today. 
I mean, then you would be wasting your time because you're just asking one individual um, about his opinion, uh, and I think we can spend our time better than that. Um, so, the Chinese Communist Party is uh, something I've been working on for, let's see, about 40 years. Um, doing research in China about it, um, but also outside of China increasingly. Um, and it's an organization that, just like China as a whole, um, uh, when, you have an when you say something about it, you say, it is like this, then the opposite is almost immediately also true. So whatever you say, the opposite is also there. Um, and the question is not so much, is it this or is it that, but rather, when is it this and when is it something else? So what conditions specific responses or specific actions of the Communist Party in which particular circumstances? So, in other words, it's really hard to pin it down on one particular trait or one particular characteristic because it is just so many different things at the same time. It is, for instance, a what is formerly revolutionary party, but it's also um, an organization that sits on top of one of the largest bureaucracies uh, in the world. And that's actually a contradiction, right? Uh, and both of them are true. Um, so trying to understand what the Chinese Communist Party is, is not an easy matter. But it's probably best to start with um, understanding that the Chinese Communist Party is both a, you could say, a parallel government. Uh, so you have the government, as we have it in the Netherlands as well, the state, uh, we usually say in the Chinese context. Um, but the party is there as well, and it duplicates the organizational structure of the government to a very large extent. So that's one side of the party, but the other side is just as important, that that is the party is currently 95 million members of the party. And 95 people is a lot, right? It's larger than the largest European country. Um, but in the overall Chinese context, it's just six and a half, seven percent or something like that. Um, but these 95 million members are a side to the Chinese Communist Party, which is just as important as the organizational side, the administrative side that uh, I, I mentioned. Um, so let's start with the first aspect, the administration. So the Chinese Communist Party, um, as I said, has uh, a structure which parallels that of the state, of the government, um, and it, but it operates, um, as it were, behind the scenes. So the state does the day-to-day -day running of the country, um, but the Communist Party tells it what to do, uh, and why to do things, and how to do things. But it doesn't really do very much, at least until recently it didn't do very much itself. So the Communist Party at each level of the administration, and there are five in China, um, has um, its own departments, you can say at the national level, the central level ministries, that coordinate the work of a whole bunch of other ministries and departments of the, of the state, of the government. Um, but as I said, they don't do very much themselves, these departments, but they tell the state what to do. But the point is that this, the party doesn't just tell the state what to do. The party controls all aspects of the administration and of social, political, and economic and cultural life. So to the party, and that is a fundamental uh, point, um, society, Chinese society as a whole, you could think of as a chessboard. 
And on that chessboard, and the, the, the Communist Party is, the, is one of the players. Actually, it's the only player. It's the only chess game in the world where there's just one player. And he plays with just the white pieces, you can say, or the black pieces. But that player controls the state and its many different organizations and its many different departments. But it also controls the army, which is separate from the state it's as such. It also cont controls the judicial apparatus, so the courts, um, the, 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 the um, district attorney system, and so on and so forth. That is also controlled by the Communist Party. The Communist Party also controls the organs of representative government, i.e. the parliaments. China has two parliaments, just like we. They're a little different from what we have, obviously. And for starters, they're much bigger. Um, but at the end of the day, they are controlled by the Communist Party in very specific ways. And the state also controls, of course, um, state-owned enterprise, so a very large chunk of the economy. Uh, it owns the businesses, the largest businesses in China, and as such, it has a very important say in how the economy works. The state also controls, for instance, the financial system, so the most important banks are, are party-controlled. So the party is everywhere, right? Uh, if you want to understand China, this is the one thing. The party is everywhere and controls everything or wants to control everything. But what it doesn't want to do is have total control. So the party understands, as nobody else, I think, that when you, if and when you try to control everything, you end up controlling nothing. And this is not a theoretical premise that they have sort of gotten from books, but this is something they've learned from hard experience. They tried in the 1960s and 1950s, they tried to control everything, Mao Zedong tried to do that. Um, and in the process he destroyed not only the state, but even destroyed, almost destroyed the whole party itself. Um, so the party has said that never again. You know, we can't have uh, a, a, a party that wants to control each and every minutiae of social, political, economic, cultural life. We have to pick and choose. We have to say what is important to us and what's not important. And we have to let things go if they're not strategically absolutely essential. So that is really the reforms in a nutshell after 1978. After 1978, they said, you know, we can't really control everything. In fact, we don't want to control everything, but we do want to control the things that really matter. And the other things, we let go. But we always keep an eye on it, right? We never let it become fully independent, but it will become autonomous and it has to sort of play its own role, find its own feet, develop according to its own logic. And the economy, of course, is a key example, the market economy. But you can make the same argument for other aspects of the social and political life, cultural life, for instance, um, social life, uh, religious life, even if you want to. Um, all these things have been let go to a certain extent, but always with the gaze of the party there to ensure that things don't go get out of hand. So the party is everywhere. It can, want, it can control everything if it wants to, uh, but usually it is satisfied with just keeping an eye on things and just ensuring that things go roughly according to the playbook. Um, and that things are not getting out, and particularly not that, that developments are directed against the party and its rule itself. That's, of course, the most important consideration. You don't want anything to happen that can threaten the rule of the party uh, in China. China is 
not a one-party state, by the way, but the party, the Communist Party, is the ruling party. And so there are another eight democratic parties, but these are under the tutelage, as they say themselves, under the tutelage of the Communist Party. Um, likewise, as I said, the Communist Party controls the uh, organs of representative government, so the two parliaments, and it does that mainly by, first of all, having a fairly hefty say in who gets elected or appointed in these parliaments, but also uh, by controlling the party members amongst these delegates or these representatives on these, uh, in these parliaments. So the key organization of the National People's Congress, let's say the, the second chamber, uh, the lower house, whatever you want, I want to call it the House of Representatives. Um, the key organization there is um, the party committee of the National People's Congress. So the National People's Congress consists of about 2,500 people, and the party committee consists of another, a, few, a few hundred people, a few hundred party members among them, amongst them, and that really decides what's going on in the parliament. Right? So that brings me to the other side of things, namely that the Communist Party is in charge, controls everything, through its membership, right? It's the, so there's the three formal organizations, and then there's the membership. And the membership, as I said, is everywhere. So it is in the parliament, obviously. There's, you know, when you have 95 million Communist Party members, there is going to be party members wherever you go, right? Every, each and every little company, each and every enterprise, each and every school, there will be party members there. And this is not a... Um, a conspiracy, it, this is completely out in the open. Everybody knows who the party members are. The party secretary of the party committee of each and every organization is the number one in charge. That is formally also said, right? The number one in charge of each organization or company is the party secretary, who is the party secretary of the commit party committee, and the party committee is all the party members within that organization. And these party secretaries are then connected to party committees at higher levels, and this is how the party, the official, the formal structure that I was talking about earlier, is connected with the membership in all social, economic, and cultural organizations throughout society. And this web of committees and members joined up with the formal structure gives the party a reach wherever it wants to go. At least that is the theory, right? Um, and the, th the interesting thing about uh, the current administration of Xi Jinping is that they're trying to make this a reality again. So um, during the reform process, the Communist Party, at least the first 20 years or so, the Communist Party actually let go of things, let go of the market, let go of the, uh, let go of the economy, let go of society. We looked at China in the 1990s, and I visited China in the 1990s a lot. It was what I always called the Wild East. Anything goes. It doesn't matter what you did. It didn't matter what you said or what you th thought. Nobody cared. It was the freest society in the world. I, I swear to God, it was. It, nobody cared what, what happened. But then the Communist Party started to have second thoughts in the 2000s. Well, the new leadership, and the uh, Hu Jintao. Um, and he thought, and the other leaders of his team thought, that things have got, had gotten out of hand, that the Communist Party was losing control, that there were social groups that had emerged under reforms of entrepreneurs in particular, but also intellectuals or 
lawyers or, or um, artists, all these people had get, gotten a little bit, little too independent. Um, and the task at hand was then how to rein them in or how to gain some more control over them without killing them off, right? So the idea was not that we want to apply the full, the put the full boot, the full weight of the boot of the Communist Party on their neck again, but rather how do you ensure that they don't become instruments of uh, that of, 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 of protest, of even perhaps rebellion. Uh, and that was the fear, and that is why they took measures to try to avoid that. So then they started in earnest again building up this network of party committees or party members throughout society and linking that up much more firmly with the formal structure of the Communist Party. The Communist Party became also much more, uh, let's say, ideological in its, its approach to Chinese society, so emphasis was again put on what really is Marxism, what is socialism, uh, what are the core values of socialism, this is a term that's used all the time, um, what is it that the party should and could achieve in China, apart from just simply letting things play out. Um, and this was the Hu Jintao era that ran from 2002 to 2012. And the current leader, Xi Jinping, who came to power in 2012, is basically doing the same thing, but he's doing it much better. He's doing it much more systematically. Uh, he is a much more powerful individual. Um, and he has, much more than his predecessors, a really strong strategic look. Um, so his predecessors lived in an era also when China had plenty of money to spend. The, the state was flush with money thanks to the success of the market economy. Taxes were rolling in and the government and the party was dealing with problems simply by throwing a lot of money at it. Um, which is um, a favorite game of most governments uh, in the world and the Chinese Communist Party is really no exception. But under Xi Jinping that, that opulence came to, came to an end. Um, the, the revenues from for, the, from the, for the government uh, did not grow as fast as they had in the past, so they had to pick and choose a little bit more. And Xi Jinping has been very smart at picking and choosing how to spend the money on what. So he spent money a lot on, um, for instance, generating more economic growth at all costs because he knew that that would be the measure of his success um, come the end of his second term in office, which ends uh, next year. Um, so. Lots of money, lots of credit was, was, was used for that. Um, much less money was spent uh, on other things that, for instance, uh, social, social control was, um, uh, was not as heavily funded uh, as in the past, but particularly social security and welfare and education. Uh, so the things that people really want uh, and really need in China still very much, China is still a poor country in many places, these things were scaled back again and that has led to quite a bit of social friction in Chinese society that they currently now have to address. Um, they now are in a situation that the economic growth targets have been, have been met and now they have to reboot and rethink and focus the money and focus their attention now on these social goals. Anyway, um, so the point here is that um, China is controlled by the Communist Party, but the Communist Party is not, does not want to be in full control but it also has decided 20 years ago, and particularly in Xi Jinping, that the degree of control they had was insufficient. And Xi Jinping sort of, he likes sort of dramatic statements. So we're saying that, you know, the, the era of Hu Jintao, his predecessor, was 10 lost years. 
and the Chinese Communist Party was at the brink of, uh, of, a, of a political crisis, which was complete nonsense, um, but he said it with such conviction uh, and also a lot of power to back it up that uh, people accepted it in the party. Uh, the party itself also became, and this is very important really, even more than on the Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping focused on the party itself. So much of his work, much of his attention, um, much of his political and financial capital was spent on strengthening the party itself. The number of people that are members of it, but in particular this, the, the, the political um, discipline uh, of these people, the, the, the orthodoxy, the ideological orthodoxy, um, their uh, training, um, their, uh, their, as I said, their discipline and their party spirit, lots of money was thrown at that to make the party much more of a, a disciplined organization. Um, and of course, one of the key things about this was fighting corruption. But fighting corruption um, is a matter of party discipline in China, but it's only one aspect of party discipline. Other things are just as important. I mean, party discipline also means that you do what the center tells you or what your boss tells you. That's also party discipline. So the party decides, and after the party has decided, you as a party member or as a party secretary have to faithfully then do what the party has decided. If you don't, then you're in breach of dis party discipline and you can get punished, and you will get punished. Um, but corruption is the thing that people saw most, and also that was the thing that Xi Jinping asked for most attention for and got that. Um, he was also extremely successful uh, in fighting corruption uh, without actually fighting the root causes of corruption. He was simply fighting the, 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 the wh what happened, so the corrupt individuals were attacked without looking at why they were actually corrupt and how they could become corrupt. Um, but he managed to, um, already by 2000, I think 16 or 17, to have persecuted more than 100,000 corrupt officials, both, as, he, as the, 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 the term is, both flies and tigers, or tigers and flies, so big, corruption, big, big corrupt individuals and small ones. Uh, 100,000 of them were persecuted. Most of them were... Uh, subject to disciplinary measures within the party, but in serious cases they would also then get persecuted in the, form, uh, uh, in, in, in the formal judicial sense. Um, and um, many of these people then ended up in jail uh, or on the house arrest, uh, and some of them actually were executed. Um, so being corrupt in China is a high-risk business, let's put it this way, because you may end up dead if you're not very careful. But the flip side of this is uh, really important is that Xi Jinping, in this way, has made a fantastic number of enemies. Um, when you persecute the 100,000 most important people in the country, you not just alienated 100,000 really important and powerful people, you're alienating their family and their friends, who are also really important and really powerful. So you end up with a colossal number of enemies, right, across the whole party and, and state and uh, apparatus and across the army. So this means that as Xi Jinping gets, becomes more and more successful in fighting corruption, he's also becoming politically much more, uh, he has to become politically much more paranoid because there are always people out there to get him. This is the, the famous problem of the dictator. You know, the dictator fights of his competition and his enemies, but by doing so makes new enemies, so he's have to fight, he's to fight even harder. And before he knows it, there's nobody left around him and he's standing all alone. 
Um, and this is a little bit what Xi Jinping is, is now facing. In his first term of office, he um, had a team, let's call it a team, the Politburo uh, and the Central Committee, that consisted of very important leaders for, of all different stripes, so all different factional allegiances or political convictions, because Xi Jinping at that time was a compromised candidate of different groupings within the party. So he had to accommodate that, and in his leading team, there were all kinds of different people. In the first five years in office, he spent basically getting rid of most of them. Um, and what, was, what remained in 2017, when he came up for re-election or reappointment, um, was um, a bunch of lackeys, essentially people in the second team, the second administration of Xi Jinping. You get a completely different Politburo with only Xi Jinping supporters, people that he had handpicked or people that had allied themselves with him, sort of abandoned their original uh, protector or the particular their, their, their patron uh, or their faction and had joined Xi Jinping because they saw where the money was, saw where the power was. So now we're having a leadership team that only consists of people that really agree with Xi Jinping because it's in their best interest. And that is, again, a quite a dangerous situation because there's nobody that talks back, right? Um, and the people that can talk back are in jail or dead or um, perhaps they may have fled China. Um, so that leads to a tunnel vision where you can only go straight ahead and only continue doing what you have already done, but then more of it, and more of it, and more of it. So any kind of resistance or opposition or people that simply um, argue with you is seen as disloyalty, is seen as a threat, is seen as something that has to be suppressed. And this is the kind of situation that Xi Jinping is currently facing without, I think, really knowing that he does. Um, and this is not an argument for saying, well, Xi Jinping must come to an end, it's, you know, it's all coming... Uh, coming to naught. I don't think so. We're not there yet, but there is definitely a risk, particularly if he gets elected to a third term next year, which is a, a, a near certainty. Uh, if he then also continues to narrow his political base, uh, I think he might be into in, in for some real problems uh, um, in, in the longer term, say in two or three, four years from now, because the number of enemies that he'll have, uh, the number of people that just don't agree with him, or the people that have been completely silenced and can no longer participate will only increase, and the 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 the, the foundation of his power will uh, will get less and less. But of course, he has another another several trump cards to play, which also explain why he's so successful and so powerful, and that he's been been um, the one leader in China that has made China proud. Ask any Chinese in, in the Netherlands, um, particularly uh, people with a little bit of education, um, and they will say um, that Xi Jinping, such a guy, you know, he's powerful, he's strong, he's committed, he knows what he wants, and he makes me proud to be Chinese again. And that is the key thing about Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping has made Chinese proud of being Chinese again because China is, has risen. China has come to the center of the world stage. China is now becoming, perhaps, a superpower. Um, and that makes people proud in, across China. Uh, that gives him a huge support. Um, that also means that um, he has to, and he has done that actually quite successfully, 
changed the basis of his claims to power from being just the leader of the party to being the leader of the whole nation. So, and he does that very cleverly by saying, essentially saying that the party and the nation are the same thing. When you look at, as I unfortunately have to do, look at uh, political propaganda or uh, policy documents from the party, then you see that party and nation are now being conflated. And the party is the nation, the nation is the party. And if you're disloyal to the nation, or disloyal to the party, you're disloyal to the nation. And that is even exported abroad. The Chinese Communist Party is now actively working amongst overseas Chinese communities in this country, but also in other countries, to align them with the broad nationalist agenda and nationalist goals of China, and with that also of the Communist Party. It hasn't gotten a lot of bite yet, but all the props are in place for this to become more serious in, in the future. But the point is that most people go along with this quite voluntarily because they see the logic of making China strong again, and when you make China strong again, you as a Chinese are also strong. That, that feeling is, is very, very prevalent. And Xi Jinping has tapped into that very, very effectively, much more effectively than his predecessor, who tried, began to try to do the same thing, but Xi Jinping is just much more clever about it. It has also a little bit to do with um, his emphasis on, which is really strange when you think about it, about on, on Chinese culture, sort of China's excellent culture. China is a civilization, it's not just a country. Um, he says China is an excellent culture and a culture that is an example for the rest of the world that can provide things for the world, for, for the world to learn from, um, just like the West always claims that they can tell the world how it's like and what they should do. China has its own culture, its own excellent culture, both traditional and modern, and the world should benefit, will benefit from that. So he's taking on the West. Um, and that is, I think, why we pissed off with him most in the West, because he's telling us, you've been dominating the world for centuries. You've been telling other cultures what to do and what not to do, what to think and what not to think, what is proper uh, progression, what is proper civilization, um, you know, human rights, democracy, um, corporate social responsibility, name it, you know. Um, all these things are Western inventions. And we now, as Chinese, will show you that that's just one model, and we have another model. Yeah, and it's just as good, perhaps it's even better. But let people in the world pick and choose what they want. That's what he says. And that's, of course, also a powerful message, right? Um, but we in the West don't like that, because we think, we still think, deep down in our hearts, that Western superiority is real and should be maintained. And that's why we get so angry about China, because it's calling Western bluff. Right, finally. Um, so that's also a point that made me extremely unpopular when I was in Germany, by the way. Um, I said this out in the open, and they didn't really take to that too much, quite, quite honestly. Uh, they thought it was a little overstated. Um, so that brings me then to China in, um, in the world. So China in the world, what, what is it that China really wants? Uh, what is it that the Chinese Communist Party really wants? What is it that Xi Jinping really wants? Um, the most important thing is that Xi Jinping and China and the Chinese Communist Party do not want to conquer the world, right? It, this is not Nazi Germany, as some people are now saying. There are certain elements about 
the Communist Party and about Xi Jinping that resemble Nazi Germany. I will not deny that, and they are serious and very important. But the key difference is, the key difference between them and fascism, to put it bluntly, is that they don't have this idea that China should conquer the world and make the world the world safe for Chinese to be in and to dominate. That's, he doesn't want that. And he gen genuinely doesn't want The Communist Party genuinely doesn't want that. So that, yes, they have a model, they say, and it's a different model, um, but they're not out there to impose that on everybody. They're also not out there to conquer countries. In fact, no superpower conquers countries anymore. That's sort of passé. You did that in the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, but you no longer do that. Um, and China is no exception. China doesn't want to conquer. What China wants is um, the room, not the Lebensraum, but the room to, um, for its own economy and its own civilization and its own people to be in the world. So China wants to be part of the world and wants to, yes, to a certain extent, also set the terms in which that happens. Um, but it is perfectly happy to allow the people to par participate in that, have their own views, or to draw on other sources if they, if they want to. But China really wants to be taken seriously and wants to be able to defend its interests wherever they are in the world. And that makes China the beginning of a superpower. Because superpowers are different from old-fashioned powers in that they see interests everywhere in the world. Because, and this is the, the other thing, key thing, a superpower competes with another superpower, at least one. Right? So whatever happens in the world is always framed in terms of, oh, this is serving the interest of the other superpower, so we better you know, invade Afghanistan or invade Vietnam or do whatever crazy things, because otherwise you know, the, other, the other superpower will, will, will defeat us and we will no longer exist as a, as a power, as a country, as a, as a civilization. So superpowers, and that is the real problem at the moment, what, what we're facing, see competition of power in terms of absolute black and white, an absolute as exi existential threats. And what we've been doing is to look at China's expansion and China's Belt and Road Initiatives and Confucius Institutes and Chinese influences ev every in the world, and we are framing that in terms of superpower competition, uh, in terms of um, systemic rivalry. That's the word used by the European Commission. They coined that, or at least two people in the European Commission who should be, I think, no, uh, no, I shan't say that. Um, but anyway, there's two people in the European Commission who came up with this wonderful term, systemic rivalry, and almost the rest is history because the Chinese then took to that and said, what systemic rivalry? We'll show you some systemic rivalry. Um, and then before we knew it, actually, we had America and China fighting each other in terms of, yes, a superpower conflict, systemic rivalry. If you say systemic rivalry, you mean one system must go, or one system must win and the other one must lose. This is not a rivalry between countries with different, with different systems. It's a rivalry between different systems, and that's what you're saying. And China took that message, understood that message, and is you know, paying us back in kind at the moment. But really, when we look at what China wants, um, it's not really that. It doesn't really want to impose its system upon us. In fact, we are more guilty, I think, of imposing our system on them than the other way around. Much more guilty because we have no qualms about it at all. Um, but what China really wants, for instance, in, in, in Europe, is to be a big player, an important player, so that its 
market, it, it's, it's, its exports, its investments, its companies, and its people can fully profit from the markets and the industries and the advanced technologies that we have here. So that is what they want. And sometimes that is to our advantage, and we should work with that. Sometimes it's not, and we should resist it. But we should not resist it sort of as a matter of principle. We should look at, you know, what is it that China wants? Is this something that we can live with? Or is it something that is to our benefit as well? Or is it, is it not? So don't pull it into this absolute systemic rivalry framework, because then you lose sight of interests. Um, China also wants, of course, very, very important in, uh, in Europe, um, to split uh, Europe off from the Atlantic Alliance. That's, that is their big goal, right? Because their eyes are really on Washington. They are interested in the US. And Europe is just a prop or it's just part of that game. So what they want, is what they really would like to, to, to happen, is Europe to drift away from the United States. Now, they have learned that they can't really then entice the Europeans to come to China's side. They've learned that that doesn't work. The Europeans won't, won't, won't want that. Um, they like America too much, or they fear the Chinese too much. But at least they, sh they want to ensure that there's more daylight across the Atlantic. Let's put it this way. And that is an important strategic goal that sometimes they're successful at pursuing, and sometimes actually quite not. And they actually manage to chase Europe and America into each other's arms against, despite the best efforts of the Americans to achieve the opposite sometimes, you think. Um, so that is what China wants. China also wants a divided Europe, wants a weak Europe um, that is divided, but not so divided that the EU breaks up. So they want different opinions and different interests to play out to the full in, in Europe, but the EU as a player is useful to them because it creates a unified market, it creates uh, also something to talk to, which is unified. Um, so in that sense, it's useful. To them, it's also still the idea, you know, if you have a weak but united Europe, then that is still a little bit of a counterweight to the United States. So they'd rather have that than just a collection of independent states that constantly quarrel with each other. Um, so that is really the game they're playing. But also, very importantly, they want to uh, and this is something that violates, to a certain extent, what I've been saying all along. Um, they want to ensure that the Chinese presence abroad, including in Europe, but not limited to Europe, um, is tied much more firmly into the Chinese nation, but also in the party's, as they call it, system. So they want to ensure that China abroad, so globalized China, which is getting larger every day, naturally getting larger every day, it just happens. Companies invest or buy local companies, Chinese emigrate uh, or Chinese study uh, abroad, um, you know, diplomats are traveling back and forth, um, Chinese goods are everywhere, Chinese culture products even, of course, China's influence in, this, in the cyber domain is getting ever lar larger. All of that is happening. But what they want is to tie that better into the strategic aims that Xi Jinping and his team have thought up. Um, and that really determines what is happening in terms of policy making just under the radar, right? It's not the formal diplomacy that so much is informed by this, but under the radar, they are very active in doing so. Now, there are 
couple of elements to this. Um, the ones that we constantly get warned about by think tanks in Australia and New Zealand and in America and also in Europe now is that of Chinese interference and Chinese influence. Um, and that's actually small beer. It's not that important. Uh, when you look at the actual extent of Chinese influence over politics or the media or universities um, or public opinion in, let's broadly call them, democratic countries, then it's very, very small. And what they do is very clumsy quite often and is easily ferreted out. But it's blown up uh, to be this major thing because it's very useful in a context of an escalating U.S. China conflict that becomes a Western China conflict. So this then becomes, as it were, a yardstick or a, a sort of exhibit number one, as it were, in why we should all align against China. So it's not really that important. Also, the main objective here is not so much to influence our politics or our society, but rather to get a better grip of the Chinese and Chinese presence abroad. That is really what they want. And so they want the overseas Chinese, wherever they are, to become truly patriotic Chinese that are aligned with a nation that are part of an extraterritorial extra nation, really, um, that is dominated and controlled by the party. That's what they want, right? So they're not really interested in all these white faces or black faces. They're interested in the Chinese faces. That's what they really are interested in. The second thing they're uh, interested in, and this is not talked about at all in the influencing and interference debate, but I've done a lot of research on, and that is that the party itself is extending its organization abroad. So the party, as I said earlier, in China works through its members, and these members are organized in committees, and these committees you find, and these members you find in any organization in China. What is happening increasingly, actually already for about 12 or 13 years, is that the party is also setting up party committees, or branches as they're usually called, in Chinese companies and other organizations abroad. So when you have a big uh, bank that has an office, let's say in Rotterdam, um, a Chinese bank with an office in Rotterdam, then that office will have a party branch of the party members um, amongst the employees of this office. And that committee is linked up with the party committee of the embassy here in the Netherlands and with the party committee of the uh, mother company back home, the, the, the main bank in, in China. Um, and this organizational structure is now, in the last five, six years, is really being flashed out. Europe is not that important in that, I can tell you, I can reassure you, because they know they're fighting, they, they, they're fighting against the current here because it's suspicious here in Europe. Um, so it's probably not a good idea to focus a lot of energy on this, but you see it a lot in genuine Belt and Road countries, particularly in Africa, uh, Southeast Asia and Central Asia, where these party committees are beginning to be very well developed, particularly if they are part of a large Chinese multinational or very large Chinese bank. Uh, and there's a whole slew of policies that have come, come, come through to encourage this and try to tie the, uh, to, to extend the grip of the party abroad, not amongst us, not amongst the real foreigners, right, but amongst the Chinese abroad who happen to be party members. So these are all people that are temporarily from China, right, they go back to China because they've been posted abroad to work or to study. Um, so the idea is you tie them back into the system back home in order to not to lose them. You don't want to lose them to 
foreign influences. You don't want them to yield or give in or to succumb to the sugar-coated bullets of the bourgeoisie um, or Western lifestyles. That's that's actual phraseology that is being used. You want them to be to stay proper Communist Party members and cadres that return to China fully immersed in in what the Chinese Communist Party does and wants and will continue to do. And that is their main objective. So what they are creating, both amongst the genuine overseas Chinese, through overseas Chinese policies and influencing policies, and through party building abroad, is to get a stronger grip on China abroad, on global China. So what I'm saying really is that China has, has globalized over the last 25, 30 years, but with it, the party has globalized. Not to control foreign countries, but to control global China wherever it may go. Now, that's not necessarily a threat, but it's definitely something you have to watch out for because you never know how far this will extend. So what I think we, in terms of what we should do is not so much say this is forbidden, this is illegal, this is a communist conspiracy that we have to fight at all costs, but rather we have to force them to come out in the open. And if they don't declare party activities or party membership or party documents um, to us when they are abroad, then yes, they should be banned, but they should get the opportunity to work um, if it suits their own domestic purpose, i.e. tying people back into the system. That is fine as far as I'm concerned, but not if they use it to then get greater influence um, in foreign countries. And that's a little tough, actually, politically to sell in a country like the Netherlands, I would imagine, because the knee-jerk reaction is, you know, kick them all out. Uh, if they're Communist Party members and if they're Communist Party activities, forbid it, uh, and if they don't want to stop, then just kick them out. That is the easy answer, but that won't work, um, because they will simply find other ways to do the same thing, and they will continue to do it only just in, in, in secret, right? They, in fact, do it already in secret, but they're a bit clumsy about it, so that's why it's for people like me really easy to figure out what they're doing. But they will simply get smarter, and they will continue to do it. So that's not really the answer. Uh, so we have to find ways of dealing with the Communist Party as a global force without fully antagonizing, but also without being naive and saying, well, it's all fine, sure, go ahead, you know, no problem, be happy with that. Right? That middle ground is really hard to find in this particular area of policymaking, but also, of course, in other things that I've talked about earlier, in terms of economic policymaking, trade policymaking, cybersecurity is an important one as well. You know, we have to be much more alert about what it is we want, what is it we don't want, and communicate that clearly, and also be not shy in actually enforcing things by doing things that the Chinese don't like, right? Even if it costs us a little bit at times. And that's where I would like to stop. That was the lecture. Interested in more? Then check out our website, social media, or YouTube for our upcoming events, or as you did just now, to listen or watch some of our previous events. Thank you for listening.